watch and listen to the talking news every day at 12 noon and 6 p.m. on channel 96 Comcast Xfinity and channel 30 Verizon Fios. It can also be heard Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. on Channel 9 Xfinity and Channel 29 Fios. Listen anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for the Belmont Media Podcast Network. And now on to the talking news. How will Belmont Savings Change When It Becomes People's United by Joanna K. Zavallis. When news of Connecticut-based People's United Bank acquired Belmont Savings Bank for $327 million, uh, that news broke on November 27th. The, me- the immediate question that may have come to many minds is, how will this impact the community? Robert Mahoney, President and Chief Executive Officer of Belmont Savings Bank since 2010, said customers will still see the same familiar faces uh, in the branches and receive the same kind of personal service from branch personnel, lenders, and credit analysis. None of the branches are closing. In addition, Belmont Savings Bank Foundation will remain independent. Mahoney believes the most noticeable change initially will be the exterior signs of the two Belmont branches, the Watertown branch and the branches inside the star markets in Waltham, Watertown, and Newton. However, over time, there will be improvements to technology, which will improve online banking and products and services available to customers, such as wealth management, according to Mahoney. Mahoney said he feels confident People's United will continue sponsoring events the community has depended on, Belmont Savings, Belmont Savings sponsoring, such as the Town Day in May and Turn on the Town the first Thursday after Thanksgiving. They have a very strong community ethic, said Mahoney. Mahoney wanted to invite one representative from People's United to make sure they saw and understood the turn of the town tradition. Seven representatives attended. They were overwhelmed by it. They had never seen anything quite like it, said Mahoney. He said he is certain that they will want to continue the tradition. Mahoney said that the board of directors for the Belmont Savings Bank Foundation will remain the same. He said it's unusual in an acquisition for foundations to remain intact and independent, and it was an important part of the deal between uh, the Belmont Savings Bank and People's United. Having it separate ensures it gets spent here, he said. When Belmont Savings Bank became public in 2011, the Belmont Savings Bank Foundation was established and has donated between three hundred dollars to $400,000 annually to local causes in Belmont and the surrounding communities served by the bank, which include Watertown, Newton, Waltham, and Cambridge. The bank's stock has tripled since the acquisition announcement, making the BSB Foundation assets worth approximately $5 million, according to Hal Tobin, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Belmont Savings Bank since 2010. Over the years, Tobin has said $1 million has been donated 
to causes in the communities served by the bank. One of the larger donations the bank made in Belmont is 400000 to help fund the building of the new Underwood Pool. Belmont Savings Bank Foundation has also consistently supported the foundation for Belmont education annually through grants and a Belmont Education Rewards checking account product that earns points for the FBE. After the acquisition, Tobin said the benefits of the checking account will most likely change, but the FBE will stand, will still be able to apply for grants from the SB, from the Belmont Savings Bank Foundation. According to Hannah Fisher, the BSB Foundation has donated $85,000 to the FBE, helping fund events such as the Dan Sharfman Memorial Run the Spring Dinner, and Outstanding Teacher Awards. People's United is a good bank. I know the people. This wasn't some strange bank we didn't know. They aren't a regional bank. They grew by community banks. The people running it understand community banks, said Tobin. Tobin said what he likes about People's United is it has the size to provide more competitive products and services, but the culture of a community bank. They understand to give back to the community and how important things like turn on the town and town day are, he said. Staffing will change for higher positions, such as Mahoney's and Tobin's. Mahoney and Tobin will be retiring when the deal between the two banks closes the second quarter of 2019, which will be in April. Pending regulatory approval, that is. Mahoney said he helped Belmont Savings Bank grow 30 to 40% annually, bringing its assets from $400 million to $3 billion. He said he was brought on board with the mission of helping the bank grow. Based in Connecticut, People's United currently has just under 50 branches in Massachusetts. The acquisition will bring the bank's deposits uh, close to $6 billion, making it the eighth largest bank in the state by deposits according to a November 27 article in the Belmont Business Journal. And now over to my colleague, Claire. Thank you, Bob. Why is Wellington's exterior appealing? Building Committee member Pat Brush acknowledges the school does not look nice right now, but assures nothing is wrong with the wood. By Adrian Thomas. Just over seven years after it was built, the wood exterior of Belmont's Wellington Elementary School has changed. When it was built in 2011, Wellington Building Committee member Pat Brush told the Belmont Citizen Herald the wood exterior would never need maintenance. But now, to the untrained eye at least, it appears to need work. However, Brush says there is no need to worry and the wood itself is actually in good condition. It doesn't need maintenance, and it still doesn't. The stain does not need to be scraped off, Brush said. It is peeling. It was supposed to peel. The outside of Wellington is largely made up of ipe, or Brazilian walnut, which is an extremely hard type of wood. Brush and Mark Haley, another former Wellington Building Committee member, have worked on building committees in Belmont for nearly three decades. According to Brush, 
and Haley, the EPA that covers the exterior of Wellington was originally coated with a topical stain when the school was built. Brush acknowledges the school does not look nice right now, but assures nothing is wrong with the wood. According to Steve Dorrance, Belmont's Director of Facilities, EPA fares best when it is near salt water, which prevents mold from growing within the fibers of the wood and causing delay, decay. Because of Belmont's inland location, the Ipe side siding on the Wellington needed to be coated with a topical stain to protect the wood. Dorrance, who was not working for the town when the Wellington was built, says the current coating is likely latex-based on the exterior of Wellington and does not fully absorb into the hard Ipe. Dorrance thinks that an oil-based stain would have lasted longer. Oil would have penetrated the wood and formed a tighter molecular bond, whereas the latex is sitting on top of the wood and it's flaking off in a lot of places, Dorrance said. According to Haley, the Ipe exterior of the Wellington has nothing to do structurally with the school, but rather is purely for aesthetic purposes. The outer Ipe shield covering Wellington's core structure is called a rain screen, protecting the building from the elements. The rain screens are making the building very tight, so the energy efficiency goes up. However, Haley concedes the building committee did not think the stain would come off the way it has. We felt it was going to fade, not chip, Haley said. The EPA is so hard, the stain does not penetrate. Wellington Building Committee's work is done, and it has turned over the property to the town. That's where Dorrance comes in. Dorrance believes the current condition of the building does not pose any immediate structural threat, but if the stain is peeling is not addressed soon, repair costs in the future could be very high. We can't do anything with this until we get the funding, Dorrance said. There is increasing sensitivity that we probably aren't funding our maintenance budget the way we should fund it. Dorrance said the facilities department is consulting with an architect to try and come up with a solution to preserve the Wellington's Ipe exterior. Now, over to Max. Thank you, Claire. <coughs> Chenery Students Take Back That Wall by Joanna Kate Zuvelis. A Chenery Middle School male student recently discovered hate graffiti on the rear wall and mirror of the first floor boys' bathroom. In an email informing parents about the incident, Principal Michael McAllister said he was stunned by what he saw. Quote, racist language, homophobic language, and profane language adorned the side wall and the mirror, wrote McAllister. It was written with black magic marker. McAllister said this was his first time in his 19 years as a Belmont educator dealing with this kind of situation. He believes the vandalism occurred the previous day during the last or second-to-last block of the day by a student because it is a bathroom the public would be unlikely to use. He took action quickly by closing the bathroom immediately, documenting the graffiti, and then having it removed in under 10 minutes using an industrial cleaner the custodian has on hand for instances of graffiti. The incident is now under investigation. But McAllister felt something more had to be done to take back that wall. Quote, We cannot simply do nothing. As your school leader, I cannot let this incident be swept under the proverbial rug. A statement needs to be made that we are not a community that will simply let this thing slide, quote unquote, he wrote in an email to parents 
on November 19th. The day before Thanksgiving break, there was an extended homeroom to address the incident with every student in grades 5 through 8 and an interactive discussion about hateful graffiti inside and outside school, as well as what other towns like Reading and Melrose have experienced. Students were advised what, what helpful act action they could take if they see hateful graffiti and where to go if they feel unsafe. The presentation ended with a short video entitled, Not in Our Town, about how the community of Billings, Montana once locked arms and stood up to hate and how their actions can serve as a school community-wide call to action for Chenery. To see the video, visit niot.org slash niot-video slash not-our-town-billings-montana-o. Following the presentation and discussion, students were given the opportunity to respond to three prompts on colored note cards. They were asked, what impact does the graffiti have on you? What would you want anyone who saw the graffiti to know? And what message would you want to send to the student who wrote such hateful things? The responses to the prompts were collected and over Thanksgiving break posted on walls, doors, and mirrors throughout the school, including in the bathroom where it occurred. McAllister said it is a statement to show that Chenery is not a community that will let this kind of thing slide. Quote, we could post words of hope on that same wall where they were once words of hate. We can take back that wall, said a slide in a presentation given to students. Unfortunately, there is no single action that schools can take which will ensure these kind of things will never reoccur, said McAllister. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Max. Lexington's Role in the Tea Party by Amy Ortiz. Men, women, and children, some in colonial-era garb and others in modern dress, gathered around a blazing bonfire Sunday uh, to burn leaves and proclaim anyone who used the product a traitor. A strange sight in 2018, but in Lexington, it's all about history. Town residents and passers-by were celebrating the Lexington Tea Burning, which took place three days before the Boston Tea Party in 1773, when the town's citizens gathered to burn all of their tea and decry anyone who used it as an enemy of this town and this country. December 16th marks the 245th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, which will be celebrated with an immersive reenactment that includes a protest led by colonial women at the Old South Meeting House and the throwing of real tea leaves into Boston Harbor. The tea burning gathering, hosted by the Lexington Historical Society and a local reenactment group, called the, the Lexington Minutemen, began in 2012 when local author, documentary, documentary filmmaker, and Historical Society member Rick Beyer proposed the event after recreating the moment for a film. This year is the last before he and his family moved to Chicago. Whatever your political affiliation is, the, the idea of this is that citizens are taking part, Bayer said. Citizens are not leaving it to somebody else to make the decision or do things, but that the citizens of one town of about 700 people in 1773 said, well, we're going to make our stand 
and say what we think should be done. And that, at the core, is what this is all about. Lexington Historical Society board member Craig Stadler said the event was meaningful because reenactors mingled with the crowd. Everyone is engaging in the same act, the same ritual, that pulls everyone together in a way that the that reenacts don't, he said, and the crowd was invited to participate in the early afternoon ritual burning. As reenactment actors walking walked around with the sacks of tea leaves, children and their parents grabbed handfuls to chuck into the fire. Cries of huzzah and the scent of tea filled the air following the burning. The first flames of the American Revolution officially lit. Lexington was first, not just in the battle, Sadler said, but also in taking direct action against oppression. And we're not saying that the uh, that they were copying us in Boston, that they were taking their cues from us, Byer said. But let's just say that the news of the tea burning in Lexington appeared in the Boston newspapers on the morning of December the 16th. Michael Duncan Smith, a member of the Lexington Minutemen, said he joined the group because of the first tea burning in 2012. Now he's Sergeant Michael Duncan Smith, and he provides all of the reenactment actors with 18th century food during encampments. On Sunday, he demonstrated 18th century beer, rice, dried peas, and hardtack, which is a simple but very hard biscuit. I think a lot of people lose sight of our past, he said. We're all amateur historians, and we try to bring the past alive for people, especially kids who might not know the history and adults who might not know the history. Standing to the side of the bonfire with her family, Heather Nielsen said events like the one on Sunday provide a real nice experience for children to get some context of the history of the place they're growing up, and it's nice to bring the community together. It's just really nice to raise them in a community like Lexington, she said, her three children playing in front of her. I think that the history here is one of the things that brings this community together. Joe Serkovich, a Lexington resident since 1995, stopped by the tea burning Sunday after reenactment actors crossing the street caught his eye, he said. Though it was his first tea burning, Serkovich said events like this are a part of what define Lexington. The whole history of the town relative to the revolution is so important, he said. It's so important to the whole history of not only Massachusetts, but the whole country. And now on to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Tea Alerts Often Lacking in Detail by Adam Vaccaro. A train's engine catches fire? That's a mechanical issue. A wheel falls off a coach, causing a derailment? That's a disabled train. MBTA officials have had their hands full on the commuter rail recently with two major incidents on the Fitchburg and Kingston lines. But amid concerns about delayed trips and failing equipment stood another criticism from riders. The T was not offering enough detail through its service alerts about what exactly was going on. Through social media alerts, the T, for nearly two hours, referred only to a mechanical issue 
on a derailed train on November 27 near Belmont before eventually citing the derailment for subsequent delays. The locomotive that caught fire in Hanson two days later, meanwhile, was never directly described. Some Twitter users said the vague messaging seemed to downplay, if not outright hide, the gravity of the trouble. Are you going to let people know that your train was on fire, one user wrote? The T has emphasized improved communication about service problem in the last year and has taken a few tangible steps. On the subway, the T dropped a vague set of descriptions that classified delays as, quote, minor, moderate, or severe, replacing them with time estimates for how long it may take to clear up problems. Station signs that estimate weights now say if a train is stopped. But other issues persist. The Pioneer Institute, a conservative Boston think tank, recently released a report that criticized the commuter rail for using varying terms to describe disruptions. According to the report, some alerts say a train is delayed, meaning it is likely to remain off schedule for the entire trip, while others say a train is behind schedule, meaning it may catch up to its schedule. Problem is, the difference is not publicly described anywhere, making it more than a rhetorical issue said Pioneer Research Assistant Kayla Webb. If a train is described as running behind, the riders may assume they should show up to the station a few minutes late. They may miss a train that catches up. When I see, quote, running behind, I don't immediately think it might catch up. I think I have another five minutes, Webb said. While most riders probably would prefer delay-free service over better communication, there's a good reason for all this communication focus. Several academic studies have shown that getting clear and accurate information about transit from service alerts to real-time information about vehicle locations improves rider experience. Transit agencies should take the uncertainty away as much as possible, said Vikash Gaya, an engineering professor at Penn State University who studies ma mass transit. So why not be explicit about what exactly is wrong with the train? Officials say they must strike a balance between getting information to riders both quickly and accurately, sometimes delaying an official announcement until the problem can be confirmed by staff. In case of the fire, Keolis, the company that operates the commuter rail for the MBTA, said it wasn't initially clear whether there was indeed a fire or just smoke. Still, while Keolis eventually confirmed the fire to news outlets, it was never directly referenced in service alerts. Officials also note that there are different types of alerts. Tweets about service, for example, are meant to reach riders planning a trip and may want to adjust their schedule, not necessarily riders already on a train. For riders who are on a vehicle that breaks down, the conductor is meant to be the primary form of communication. Now, here's Max. Thanks, Claire. Telethon raises money for Belmont Food Pantry by Joanna K. Zuvelis. Donations poured in from noon to 3 p.m. on December 2nd for the 9th annual Gifts of Hope Telethon to benefit the Belmont Food Pantry, raising more than $3,000. 
The fundraiser, a collaboration between the Belmont Citizen Herald and the Belmont Media Center, is part of the annual Gifts of Hope campaign. Todd Blanieras, the host of Belmont Media Center's Time Out for Sports Talk, co-hosted the telethon along with Belmont Journal anchors Michael Crowley and Roger Colton and Selectman Chairman Adam Dash. Town Administrator Patrice Garvin was a special guest and talked about how she helped to find the future permanent home of the Belmont Food Pantry, which will be the ground floor of Town Hall. The move is expected to take place in early February. There was live entertainment throughout the telethon provided by Belmont's Fred Astaire dance studio instructors, the Red Herring Morris dancers, songwriter and musician Andrew Eckel of Cambridge, and singers Dave and Benji. Monetary and food donations were dropped off throughout the telethon by local businesses, including Lynn Findlay, realtor for Caldwell Banker, Juliet Jenkins, and Monica Sainsbury, realtors for Leading Edge Real Estate, and Lucas Tragos of Belmont Car Wash. Belmont Car Wash donated five $51 gift cards and five booklets for five free washes to be used as as incentives for donors of $50 or more. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Max. Country Club renovations underway. Belmont Savings Bank recently announced the groundbreaking to renovate the clubhouse and pool for the Oakley Country Club in Watertown. Belmont Savings will be the sole lender providing a $10,400,000 loan. The Oakley Country Club is a private 18-hole golf club, which was founded in 1898. The renovated space is slated to open in the spring of 2019. The main clubhouse is undergoing a complete renovation, which will include a new pool complex, an expanded front entry, and outside decking to showcase the views of the Boston skyline. We greatly value our partnership with Belmont Savings and appreciate their commercial real estate team's expertise and seamless execution, said John DeVito Sr., the president of the Oakley Country Club. We look forward to continuing to work with the Belmont Savings team in the future, as well as the completion of the renovated clubhouse and pool. This deal highlights Belmont Savings Bank's strong commitment to the Watertown community and to helping our clients reach their potential, said Keith Andre, a senior vice president of commercial real estate lending at the Belmont Savings. The Oakley Country Club is a historic Watertown locale as it is the original home of noted golf course architect Donald Ross. We are proud to support this renovation. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Sign up for an interview with the Belmont Story Project. The Belmont Story Project, BSP, is a local oral history recording project modeled after NPR's StoryCorps. This project collects the stories of the people of Belmont. The topic can have to do with raising your kids, your work life, a funny story, whatever you decide. Whether you've lived here for six months or six decades, your story matters, and we'd love to add your story to the collection, your voice as well. It's very easy to participate. Interviews are recorded in the Claflin Room at the Belmont Public Library. You need to make an appointment. 
listen to a recent Belmont Story project with State Senator Will Brownsberger talking with his daughter, Carly, about raising a family in Belmont, his work on the Board of Selectmen, and being a Massachusetts State Senator. For more information or to schedule your interview, contact Nancy McCollum at nmccolm at minlib.net or 617-993-2870. Now over to Max. Thanks, Claire. Town announces list of owners of abandoned property. Abandoned property pertains to any financial asset without customer-generated activity for an extended period of time. It does not pertain to land or real estate of any kind. An example of abandoned property is uncashed checks. If a resident finds their name on the list, they should contact the Town of Belmont Office of the Treasurer slash Tax Collector to initiate the claim process and determine what documents will be necessary for verification. Residents should have the following information readily available. Name as it appears on the list, current address and any prior addresses, social security number, insurance policy information, and policy numbers. The office is located at 19 Moore Street. For information, call Treasurer Tax Collector Floyd S. Carmen at 617-993-2770. Back to you, Bob. Along with my colleagues, Claire and Max, we thank you for listening to the Talking News and hope you've enjoyed the show. We will return next week for another edition of Local News Happenings Around Belmont.